0: Downloads of this show are available at podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Back to life, back to reality, back hey, kids! To life, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Hagua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, January 29th, 2019. And if you live up in the Northern Hemisphere, that means you may be starting to feel good because winter is gonna be winding down. Well, if not soon, but we've passed the point. And if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you may be feeling a little down because yeah, summer's past the halfway point. But no matter where you are, I truly hope that you're all getting what you need. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. I love that song. Back to Life, a dance club classic by British multi-genre group Soul to Soul from their Keep on Moving album in 1989. Boy, I love that song. (laughs) Well, we're going to move ahead to the 90s now, fully into the 90s, with this next song, which our guest artist this week picked to open their episode.
1: Feel, but you don't care I say tell me the truth but you don't dare you say love is a hell you cannot bear And I say give me my back and then go there for all I care I got my feet on the ground and I don't go to sleep to dream You got your head in the clouds you're you'll at all what you seem This mind, this body and this voice cannot be stopped All my life. I could swallow the seeds to wash down all this pride. First you run like a fool just to be at my side. And now you run like a fool, but you just run to hide. And I can't abide. I got my feet on the ground and I don't go to sleep to dream. You got your head in the clouds, yeah, I'm not at all.
0: That was Sleep to Dream from Child Piano prodigy and 90s Grammy award-winning artist Fiona Apple from her title album in 1996. Well, I forgot how much I liked listening to that album back then. Another one of my fave songs from that time was Criminal. Remember that? Remember that video with the 70s porn-style basement rec room set with the wood paneling and the shag rug? Well, I do anyway. <laughs> A fun fact about Fiona. Her sister is the equally talented cabaret singer, Maud Maggart. So you might be wondering what do Back to Life and Sleep to Dream have in common for our guest artists this week? Well, wait no longer, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Aguas, guest artists of the week. Woohoo! I am doing a home interview today. And I'm doing a home interview because I wanted to schedule this exciting writer. And the only way we could do it was to have her come over. So let's get right to it. And please welcome writer, journalist, and educator, Evelise Rodriguez. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Oh, my God. Thank you for trekking all the way out to where you
2: trekked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Uber made it easy.
0: So, Ivalice, I always ask this of everyone when we begin our chat together. How and where did we meet?
2: Well, we actually met online. And so, I don't know how you got the call, but um, I... Dalma. Dalma Nanos Figueroa. She posted something, and she recommended me. Oh good! Okay, good. So yeah, I wanted to start an interview series for Puerto Rican writers, contemporary Puerto Rican writers, because I felt like Puerto Rican literature was being sort of lost and forgotten. And I feel like we have like a hundred year history of Puerto Rican literature from the continental U.S. And I wanted that to always be recognized and treasured. And so I wanted to just make sure that Puerto Rican literature is never forgotten. I pitched the interview series to the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, and they were like, well, give us more information. So I was like, okay. So I did my call to see who was out there, and then I got so many responses. It was great, and I was also like, how come we don't know each other? And I interviewed you after reading your book, Fischer of Glock. So that's how we met. And then you were so gracious to come to one of my readings. Well, I wanted to support you. You know, Mm -hmm. I was so thrilled
0: when you wanted to interview me with your series. And I'm very thrilled to be considered part of Puerto Rican literature. That and the MetroCard gets me on the subway. (laughs) But, you know, I will take the intellectual props.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And so um, with your book in particular, I was really intrigued by it because I felt like it was telling stories that I hadn't heard before, and so I just thought it was really fascinating. I mean, it just had so many layers to it. Oh, thank
0: you. Yeah. It's a red onion. (laughs) I mean, all, all of our stories are just so important because women, especially women of color, our stories have been the ones that have been dismissed, discarded, and devalued. But it's time for us to get our stories out in the world. So let's get started on how we got your stories out into the world. So are you a native New Yorker? No. Um I was born in Puerto Rico. And then um what town? At a oh, oh, where the observatory is. Yes, I've yes, been there. Really? I saw the dish. <laughs> yes. I, I saw the dish that's there
2: for when for when the Vulcans and Mr. Spock decide to contact us. <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't even know if I've seen the dish. I don't think so. Um, yeah, so I was born there, and then um, I guess I must have been around two years old, and we moved to Holyoke, Massachusetts. And um, I talk about this in my book. I have a story called Holyoke Mass and Ethnography. And the whole thing about Holyoke is is there are a bunch of Puerto Ricans there. And nobody in the world would ever know that. And technically, it has, like, the highest concentration of Puerto Ricans outside of Puerto Rico. And, again, nobody would ever think about that. Really? More than New York? Yeah, because it's a concentration. Oh, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, I was talking to a friend, and he does, like, community work. And so he went to Holyoke, and he was like... I've never seen so many Puerto Ricans. And so um, for me, it's important that the stories of other enclaves get told because I'm pretty sure all the New- uh, Puerto Rican literature from the continental U.S. that I've read is about a New Rican experience. Mm. Yeah. So we don't hear about the enclaves in Western Massachusetts or in Cleveland Ch- or Chicago. Chicago, Yes. Yeah. I,
0: I, did a, I did a show out there about 10 years ago and I was amazed.
2: Mm-hmm. I was like, where did these Puerto come from? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, so I think it's important that we, like, stretch the narrative that we're telling and tell other stories. Oh, my
0: God, that is so interesting. So what made your parents move to
2: Massachusetts? What was the attraction there as opposed to Mm -hmm. New York? Well, my mother went to Holyoke because her sister was there. So how her sister got there, then I'm not sure. So that's a good question, and I'll ask her. But her sister was already there, so my mom was like, I'm just going to go no, there.
0: well, that makes sense. You go where your family is. Yes, yes. So you grew up speaking Spanish, which is your
2: primary language? Um, sort of. Not really. My mother speaks English, and so she must have learned that in school. And my father doesn't speak any English. Um, I do know Spanish. I learned it as a child. But I I feel like most of the time in the house, we spoke English. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and the thing was that I could tell my mother was really mad when she spoke in Spanish. So if she was still speaking English, we weren't really in that much trouble yet, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I had the same experience. You consider yourself bilingual, though. It's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but... You know, I feel confident if I go to a Spanish-speaking country that I will be perfectly fine. Did you always know that you were a creative person? When I was younger, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Oh. And, um, can you draw? No! <laughs> and that's the thing, I think it's just one of those random things you get in your head and you just think this is what I'm going to do, even though there's no rhyme or reason for it. Is your family creative? Are they education-oriented?
0: Is anybody else, any other artists in your family besides you? My grandfather plays the guitar for
2: fun. Well, that's music. That that that's yeah. creative. Music is creative. And he used to make moonshine, so maybe that's creative. That's creative. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think I was in the fifth grade, and so the entire school had to write like a story, which was you know like a paragraph or like a page long. And so I remember I used the word grotesque in it because. One, I was an avid reader, and so I would look up words I didn't know, and um, so anyways, I used that in my story. I don't remember what the rest of the story was about, and just one day the principal came to my classroom, and she said I had the best story, and she gave me a candy bar. And from then on, I was like, I'm going to be a writer. A candy bar? <laughs> yes.
0: That's better incentive than a gold star. <laughs> it is. Do you remember what, what kind of...
2: Remember when the schools have sell uh, chocolate bars? Oh, okay. It was one of those. <laughs> so that's how a writer was born. <laughs> that is how a writer was born. So, okay, so I must have been 10 then. And um, then the thing was, just for a long time, I kept saying I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really write that much you know sometimes I would write bad poetry but I think that underneath people could see that there was a strain of something um worth pursuing there when you say people do you mean your family or do you mean the people that were educating you the people that were educating me how
0: what did your family think of you being a creative person or possibly having a career as an artist
2: You know, it's funny. Um, I, I went to a boarding school, and there were a lot of kids there who had a lot of money. You know. How did you end up there? This is kind of crazy. We, my sister and I, were working in the tobacco fields for the summer. Oh, not illegally, but you know, we forged some documents and said we were older than we were. And we came home one day, and basically, there was this guy there, Brad Zervas, who was like the admissions director, I think, at Northfield Mount Hermon School, and. Somebody had started a scholarship for two students from Holyoke to go to the sporting school and um, he, Brad had talked to somebody at this organization called Nueva Esperanza and so I think the aunt recommended her nephew. Her nephew knew me so he recommended me and so basically we came home from the tobacco fields, we were exhausted and this man showed up at our door and we let him in and he, he told us this crazy story, and we're like, okay. And so um, so I applied, and then I got in. What an amazing stroke of luck. Did your sister get in it as well? Is, um, I think she could have gone, but my mother didn't let
0: her go. Uh, she wanted to keep somebody home.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think she wants to keep an eye
0: on my sister. Uh. <laughs> so that's what happened. Wow, what, what an amazing opportunity for you to get the type of education that many children of color
2: do not have the opportunity to have. Exactly. I've been talking about this a lot recently. It's a double edged sword because you see this in a lot of Latino narratives, where the student who goes off to get educated, how then um, a sort of crisis of belonging arises. You know, they don't feel like they belong in their old world anymore, nor fully in their new world. And you know, to me, it's analogous to like a immigration experience. Oh
0: yes, I I totally understand that. One manifestation of that is people saying you're not keeping it real right right so in other words you're supposed to just rot at whatever depth with everybody else and god forbid you try to do something better with yourself exactly
2: exactly and why is that i don't know and so i think um and so what i noticed with some of my classmates there at the boarding school and even at columbia um was that their parents had a lot of control over what they were gonna do in the future. And I thought that was so interesting because my mother was sort of like, do anything. For her, it was just so awesome that I was, you know, in this boarding school and that I could go on and do something else. There was no sort of end to that possibility. So I thought that was interesting. So it allowed me a lot of latitude, um, which I feel like the other students did not have as much. Wow. Mm -hmm. So
0: the people who were educating you at your boarding school encouraged you to pursue your writing gifts.
2: Yes. um, It's very interesting. I feel like I've had a lot of old white male mentors, older white male teachers, all of them, which I find fascinating. That's great. Yeah. That makes my heart happy. Yeah. Because you hear so
0: many stories from that demographic in education.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. So I'm like, I just had a very different experience because, you know, I had a professor, um, not professor, a teacher there, Mr. Fleck. He was our English teacher. And um, yeah, he absolutely, you know, supported my writing and... I recommended that we read Down These Mean Streets and then we did as a class and he just, like, loved the book. Yeah, it's an amazing book. Yes, it is. And, you know, he had never heard of it, read it, etc. And when I was in my master's program, my thesis director was Dwight Henry. Again, older white male, but he really championed my writing. And then the same thing when I was getting my PhD. Uh, Eugene Wildman was my um, dissertation chair. And... Um, I just find it really interesting that I have, like, these three older white males that have, like, helped me, like, all along and have seen my work and understood it and not, like, dismissed it. Because I think with my work, it's, um, I guess with any work, it's, um, you can either really connect to it or you may not see the glory in it, you know? And how did your family feel about you being on this writer track?
0: Were they proud of you, or did they try to dissuade you, or did they not know what to make of it?
2: No, I think for my mother, again, any of it was exciting. I remember I was in my boarding school, and I was supposed to go visit Brown. I had gotten into Brown University, and they called my mother and were like, where's your daughter? And she was like, what do you mean? And so the whole thing was I had ended up in the infirmary. I was sick, and so that's why I wasn't at Brown, and I guess... Nobody told Brown, but my mom came to pick me up and take me home and we like stopped at McDonald's and then I guess she saw a bus full of like Cornell students and I had gotten into Cornell too. And she was like, My daughter got into Cornell. Meanwhile, like, I'm sick. I think my lips were blue, you know, but she was still like... Oh my God.
0: <laughs> so she was so proud of you. Yes, so yes. How many colleges did you apl-
2: get into? Um, I think I might have applied to eight. Maybe. Did you get in all of them? No. Um, I didn't get into Yale. I didn't get into Vassar. I didn't get into Barnard. But I got into Columbia, Cornell, Brown, Syracuse, and NYU. Wow. Yeah. That's not shabby. No, not at all. <laughs> but at the same time, people will try to take things away from you. So we had a um, a tradition uh, at my boarding school where people would put up their college acceptance letters on their like room door. But I didn't put mine up because I felt like a lot of the white students were like, oh, you just got in because you're a person of color and blah, blah, blah. Oh, girl. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, like affirmative action, action. Yes, exactly. And it's it's so, um, um, uh, you know, my friend tried to talk to me about that when we were in graduate school and we got into a big fight about it. And I'm like, you know, that's just really some sort of like white hysteria kind of thing because, first of all, when I went to Columbia, most of the students of color had either gone to a boarding school or, Or like a private school. So it was like what uh, Du Bois would call the talented 10th, you know? So it's like we had to be at that level to get into these these Ivy League schools. Meanwhile, I'm sure plenty of those white students went to, you know, public school, etc. That is crazy. (laughs) Just sad. The underlying theme, I think, is always you inherently could never be smarter enough to right. achieve these things on your own. And
0: I've heard people <clears> say <throat> again and again when I interview them that they always felt that they had to be double good. They had if if, if the the Caucasian counterpart mm-hmm. was smart, they had to be double smart. Mm-hmm. If the Caucasian counterpart was in 4 clubs, they had to be in 8 clubs. Anything that 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 they set their mind to they felt like they had to just overachieve to be seen at the same level right right it's well hopefully we're changing that narrative <laughs> oh boy I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be so indignant so i have to change the subject
2: now. <laughs> what made you decide on columbia oh you know i i guess the dream was always like go to new york city mm. and i really loved columbia It's my favorite school. It's always true, and I'm like a New Yorker at heart, even though I've lived in a lot of places. But I, I do, even though I probably haven't been to a lot of cities around the world. But I think what could be better than New York? I'm like there can't be anything better. So, so what did you major in? um, English, of course. Yes, (laughs) I had thoughts like, oh, maybe I should do anthropology or East Asian studies because I was taking a lot of like Asian lit courses. But I was just playing myself, and I did English, and I only took a few, maybe three. But even then, um, the professors were encouraging. But I still didn't know how to craft a full story or anything like that. But for whatever reason, I applied to MFA programs. I got into Emerson in Boston, and I feel like I learned how to write. I think that—I think about people who go to MFA programs today, and I think— They're already, like, on another level of their crafts. Meanwhile, I felt like I was at the very beginning, and so I learned how to write there, or I started to learn how to write, and then um, I graduated, came back to New York, then decided to go to Miami, and then I went to Chicago and did my Ph.D. in English and creative writing, and there my writing was stronger but I was still learning some. Where in Chicago? What school? Um, University of Illinois. Oh, at Chicago? Yeah. Did you always know that you were going to teach? No, no. When I um first finished Emerson, I came back to New York and I worked in public relations. And um, but I wasn't like very good at the pitching. Like my natural disposition is like I'm an introvert, so I hated like calling people up to like pitch a client. And so then I went to. Miami, and I did um, AmeriCorps, and so I was running a tutoring program out of Miami-Dade Community College, and there, my boss set it up so that I could teach a composition course so I could get some teaching experience, and so then, um, then my first class was great, and so I thought, oh, this is just the way it's going to be, and then I taught more classes, and some of them were not that great, but... I applied for my PhD program, and I got in, and so there at UIC, I taught some more, and you know what's funny? I had gone to Cuba, like, in 2001 or something, and um, I, like, met some Santana in the park, and she did, like, a reading, and she was like, you're going to be a doctor, and I was like, no, no, mm-mm. I have no interest in medicine, no. I'm like, maybe a teacher, maybe, but I was like, no. And then I realized, you know, much later, I'm like, oh, my God, I am a doctor. Yeah, he actually is a doctor. <laughs> yes. I'm wow. Like, oh, my God, that's so cool. Wow, that Santera. knew what she was talking about. <laughs> yeah, no. So
0: what, um, what was the spark that made you want to publish, that made you want to write Love War
2: stories? Well, I think, um, and I've talked about this, it's. To me, you know, in a workshop, we're creating individual stories, but for me, I was always thinking about it as a collection because, you know, I had to write a thesis. And so to oh, me. So this came out of your thesis? Yeah, and my dissertation, too. Oh, great. Um, so it was an expansion of both um, and a lot of revision. And um, so, you know, I think these are the kind of stories that I was attracted to in college. I loved Loose Woman by Sandra Cisneros, mm. even though it's a collection of poetry. But I felt like it really spoke to me in terms of the way I saw the world. And, um, you know, as young heterosexual women, you're so, like, indoctrinated into, like, finding love and having relationships. And you also waste a lot of time thinking about your relationships, etc. And so I guess it's just, you know, the things that I had on my mind. And for me, this book, it's, It's almost like I think the perfect audience is a college age young woman, but then I also find that older women also really connect. Because they can see their younger selves in it. That's important. Yeah. That's that's very, very important. From talking
0: to you, it just seems that there was no doubt that the second you started with that boarding school, you were going to just be on this exalted path.
2: Right, right. That's
0: amazing. And that happy accident opened yes. doors for you that, that would not have even
2: been there to otherwise. Right. There was no way that I would have been prepared for Columbia if I had not gone to that boarding school. There was actually another Evelise in my town, and I believe she went to Yale, and I don't think she finished, and I could understand why, because there's no way that she would have been academically prepared for that from going to one of our public schools, and um, even when I got to the boarding school, you know, I was always sort of at the top of my class before high school. But when I got there at the age of 13, you could see the difference in education for the, from those people that had gone to, like, private schools mm. all their life. And it was just astounding to me because they were just on another level. And, you know, that's the thing about education. It's, you know, sometimes we talk about it, but we don't talk about it enough, how much money makes a difference in the kind of education you're going to receive. Are you trying to shorten that gap now for your students? I hope so, but the thing is, by the time I got them in college, there's just been such a long period of this. You know, I taught at atboro Manhattan Community College, and a lot of the students did need remediation, and, um, it's, um, you know, they're, they're just far behind, I think, than, um, other college students, and... They don't seem to have a sense of that, and i I've always worried about what are they going to do out in the world. Mm. Um, But let's get back to you and your writing. mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so Love War Stories, your your debut book of Mm -hmm. short stories, came from
2: your dissertation?
0: Yep. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit.
2: Okay. um, Part of it was my thesis, and then I kept working on it, and then it was my dissertation, but it still needed more work afterwards and um, and that's just like in a neurotic like crazy writer way like it still needed more editing and so let's see i graduated from a history program in 2006 and um, so the book just got published July 10th 2018
0: that's my birthday oh it is July 10th is my birthday i yeah. oh my god look you know <laughs> You know what I love? I love when, when two women are friends mm-hmm. and something delightful happens, they both start squeeing. <laughs> yes. It's great, squeeing on the air. <laughs> so, how, how long did it take for the book to come from
2: concept to reality? So, I always say, like, te- well, I guess technically it would be 22 ish years mm-hmm. because the first story, um, which is the story called Love War Stories, that's the one I started the fall semester of my senior year, and... Of high school? Of college. Of college, okay. Yeah, and then, like I said, I had to keep learning how to write, and and then also, you know, you spend a lot of time not writing. I think, also, my writing practice wasn't very good. Like, I think I needed to have a more dedicated practice, but I also had a lot of fear um, in terms of writing, about, like, failing, and then there came a point where I felt like I did fail because... The book wasn't getting picked up by anybody. And I think when you're young, you have certain illusions of what, like, a writing life is going to be, that people are just going to see, like, what's underneath the book, even if it's not polished, and they're just going to love it. They're going to give you a book book deal, and you're going to sit around and write. And that doesn't happen. You have to go get a job and deal with a lot of rejection and, um... Yeah, talk a little bit about that process. How did you get an agent? How did you get your publisher? Um, I actually don't have an agent. Oh. Oh, I know. Well, what happened was um, I quit my job at BMCC after being there for six years, and I worked a lot. I would have 80 to 100 students at the beginning of the semester, so really I was working like six days a week. The only day I took off was Saturday like no grading, no nothing. And so I wanted to spend more time writing because it always felt like a lifeline, like the thing that was going to save me. And um, so I quit my job and I um, moved to North Carolina with my mom and her husband. And um, But honestly, I had given up on this book. And so I was like, I'm going to work on a novel. And so I was working on a novel. I was making great progress. And then my mother's husband died. So I was taking care of her, etc. But for some reason, I still edited some of the stories in the collection. I don't know why I kept editing them. So I saw that um, because, like I said, I had given up on the book. I'm like, it's just not going to get published as a book. I'll be I should just be happy that a lot of the stories had been individually published. And so I saw that the Feminist Press had um, a first book prize for a woman or non-binary writer. And I'm like, oh, I'll just send in my collection. So then I ended up being a finalist. And I was like, oh, my God, that's crazy. But I, I still have the mentality that I'm not a winner. Like, some people constantly win things, you know? That's their luck in life. Mm. And I'm saying luck meaning all things are equal and... um If everybody's talented, some people, I think, just do have better luck than other people. No, I know what you mean. I have a history of coming in second.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, and from what I understood, there were five finalists, and so I didn't win the contest. However, (laughs) they wanted to publish it anyway. And I was like, were you the only other finalist that had that offer? I thought so, but no. Then I realized Camille Acker also. Um and her book just came out and it's um That's fantastic.
0: I guess the three of you. Yeah, you, you, Camille, and whoever ended up being the winner right. were just so neck and neck they kind of felt like we have to do all of them.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh that's fantastic. Yes, yes. So the person who won is YZ Chin. And um yes, yeah, so it was totally great. And here we are, and um, you know, at the beginning of the process I was like I don't expect much, you know, like, I'll just be grateful for whatever happens. But then it started, you know, making a lot of uh, lists of, like, must-read books for 2018. And so then that was super exciting. And I was at Hostos Community College. They had their Puerto Rican Book Expo. And somebody came by, and she's like, are you Feliz? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, oh, my God, I'm reading your book right now. And I was like, what?! So well, is- that's, that's an amazing
0: feeling i've had that happen to me yes. it makes you feel legit yes. doesn't it <laughs> it does because it's like am i the only one that's seeing the
2: list you know like yeah. am i the only one seeing the press for the bug and it's like no other people are reading it it was just so cool it makes it real it does it does <laughs>
0: so this is the perfect time for this mm-hmm. a little Pascal. I don't say a little birdie, because this is the fish out of Agua show, not not the birdie out of Agua show.
2: A little Pascal says you have a story to share from Love War Stories. So I'm just going to read an excerpt from the titular story, Love War Stories. And again, this story is um, different from the other stories. The nine stories in the collection are pretty different from each other, um, really different voices, etc. And this story in particular is a hyperbolic um, story about a love war between mothers and daughters and so the mothers tell anti-love stories and the daughters tell pro-love stories and you know so they have this sort of love war going on and um but i think that this story in terms of theme you know captures what the whole book is about my mother along with a long line of conspirators told us always never trust a man A man only wants one thing and as soon as he gets it, he'll be gone. The repercussions for falling in love were always the same. A broken heart and a bad girl rep at best. At worst, a life of welfare checks and a baby every other year. Our mothers wanted something new for us, but it was really something old, something borrowed. They wanted marriage, the divine notion of marriage. Our mothers didn't believe in love between men and women anymore, though. They just wanted our future husbands to stay. Marry, they said, but don't believe. The neighborhood women always gathered at my house to preach about how dirty men were. They'd begin by discussing a female literary figure and note how she too had been scorned by men. And see, don't women come from a long line of rejected people? Then they move on to the neighborhood women, how times hadn't changed. Mr. Rivera, who left his wife for that no-good Miss Medina, was seen coming out of you guessed it Mrs. Torres's house, and now Mr. Torres was out of town visiting quote-unquote familia again. Men cannot be trusted. Amen. This was their weekly prayer. It all started with my mother the day my father left. All anybody could hear throughout the neighborhood was 26 years of marriage shattering, the dishes cracking, her heart splitting, everything they had ever been told about love, marriage, all of it broken. And the women started coming one after the other, bringing handkerchiefs, pastries, and their own stories of crushed love. For that one night, their lives held no clear trajectory no absolute truths, only emotion, chaos, and open doors. During the first year of their meetings, all my mother could do was talk about my father. Stories about him were bubbling from her mouth at every meeting. And it was like you could see inside her, the tributaries of memories pumping into her heart and back out. But then one day, in the Chicopee Public Library, she came across Ethan Brand by Nathan- Nathaniel Hawthorne, she had taken to going to the library to find out why her husband had left her. And she realized that she didn't have to spend the rest of her years with her heart dangling from her blouse. I imagine that she came home that night, lightly coated with snow, took off her winter coat, studded herself in the mirror, and realized that nobody in her life had really told her her husband could leave her. She scanned her bedroom and moved the furniture around, noticed the dust that had accrued over the years, and thought it was easy to wipe away. And placing her bed in the center, she must have reached into a medicine man's suitcase full of tubes, syringes, cotton, and marble, laying down and allowed the blood to drain out of her while the marble poured in. And much like my father the year before, she walked out of her bedroom, unencumbered by a heart. Wow, that is that is just lovely.
0: It's cinematic writing, because mm-hmm. I'm picturing her mm-hmm. throughout. Wow, love war stories. You know, that's such a great title. I think titles are very important. So I want to know why that title, what made you choose that title, and how the nine stories interconnect. What's the arc?
2: Right, um... So I had other titles before, and the first title was I Just Want to Be a Woman, but then I thought it was kind of clunky, and, um, you know, it did remind everybody of the Portis Head song, so that didn't work, and so then I thought the fact that they're having this love war, I thought that really captures... But who were the they? In. The, different, the um, different women? Yeah, in, in the story Love War Stories. And initially that story wasn't even called Love War Stories. It was called A Different Story. Um, but then I felt like that didn't really have the oomph that captures what the story is about. But I called the book Love War Stories before I changed the title of the story. I felt like it was a powerful title. And it again, is. that it captures what the book is about. You How know. do the stories then connect? Okay. Interconnect. Yeah, so I think it's um, the interconnect in the sense that they are all sort of struggling with this idea of love. There's only one story where the protagonist is male. All the other protagonists are female. And so they're struggling with this idea of love and relationships and they're experiencing things that are detrimental to them, the girls in the story. But just like in real life, everybody sort of worships at the altar of this idea of love. And the pursuance of that idea becomes more important than things like self-care, respect, mm. kindness, etc. Like women all, often do to themselves. Yeah, exactly. Put everybody else first. Yes, yes, yes. And so that's what connects the stories is how, um, how detrimental love is. And also a lot of the characters in the book they're sort of trying to break away from something in their lives, some sort of boundary, or they're being forced to break away from a particular boundary. And, um, you know, just like in writing, a shift can be momentary, it can just be one inch over, but these characters, they're going to shift in some way that um, normally betters their lives, even if it may not seem like that right at the end. You know, my hope is that women, you know, these are, like, all heterosexual dynamics. Um, That women, heterosexual women, just become stronger and don't have to sort of worship at this idea of love or pursue it as their life goal. That last sentence is great. So what do you... What's coming up for Ivelisse next? And what do you foresee for Love War Stories? I am working on a novel. It's called The Last Science of Singer. And it is about a salsa band in the 1970s and uh, two of the three main characters. One is Vicente, he's the salsa singer. Then there's Richie, the saxophone player. And then there is Lucy, who Richie loves. And she won't necessarily fall into his arms. And she becomes pregnant by somebody else and Richie thinks this is his opportunity to change the narrative and be the hero. So he's like, I'm gonna take care of you. And Vicente is appalled by this, and he wants to save Richie from that sort of life. And so basically, Vicente and the rest of the orquesta, they play a song called The Palomita Song, and it's about um, this love story between Richie and Lucy. And the band, the song itself, it's making fun of Lucy and their relationship. And the song has been to sort of embarrass them and shock them into realizing... That they're not good for each other but then what happens is the palomita song becomes their greatest hit and so vicente you know had wanted to get lucy out of their lives and now he's forever attached to this song he has to play it at every concert his nickname becomes el palomita man so in um, trying to save his friend, he ruins himself and the career that he wanted for himself. Wow. It's a twisted triangle. With, it's a
0: twisted love triangle that manifests itself in a way that you don't expect.
2: Right. Right. That sounds
0: great. I can't wait to read that too. Ooh, don't take twenty-two years to write. No, I'm not, I'm not. I'm like
2: time is ticking. I'm getting
0: old. So, if people want to learn more about you and your work, or get in touch with you mm-hmm. for a
2: booking or anything else, where can they find you? They can find me online at IvelisseRodriguez.com That's I-V-E-L-I-S-S-E R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z dot com and there's a contact form and you can find out about my events and you can get to see reviews of the book, blurbs of the book etc. And where are you on socials? Um, I am on Twitter, and uh, the handle is at Um and then I am on Instagram at aracien 11 and that's A-R-A-C-I-E-N, and then the number 11.
0: That's great. And are you continuing now your interviews for Central Voces? Yes. Now, if people want to learn more about Central Voces or mm-hmm. the work that you're doing chronicling a mm-hmm. hundred years of Puerto Rican literature, mm-hmm. basically, right, from mm-hmm. when we became citizens, right, right. Uh, how can um, they find more information about that?
2: Okay, so there's a link to the interviews on my website And then also, if you go to Central Voices, you will see the interviews there. And in the little introduction, I'll tell you that it's part of the interview series. So you get a sense of which ones are part of the series and which are not.
0: I just think that's so great. Because not only are you putting out your own creative work, you're adding it to the other canon. So you're working on it. You're like a candle. (laughs) But it's like burning Instead of burning from both ends, you're burning from the middle and you're going out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that too. I, I, I say that about myself too, but like I, I like that analogy. So, Evelise, I always ask this question of everyone when we come to the end of our chat together. If you had a word or two or three Mm -hmm. of advice or encouragement for a young person who may not have had the Mm -hmm. happy accidents that you have had to push you across to achievement, but knows that they are worth something more Mm -hmm. than the constraints of their circumstances Mm -hmm. will have them be. What would
2: you tell this child? I would tell them that they have to know that internally because the world is gonna be against you and that you have to create this safe space inside of yourself that tells you that you can do it. You know, so many people suffer from imposter syndrome. So I don't want them to suffer through that. And um, I think it's really, you just have to keep going. You have to do your work. Like in terms of writing, I would say to a young writer, Don't take 22 years. Um, Really, you know, you have to make a schedule and you have to be dedicated to it. And also, the schedule doesn't have to be something crazy like four hours a day. It could be half an hour a day. And you would get more done in a year than you would if you, like, write, like, once a month or what have you. So that, that would be my advice. So basically, just altering a little bit of what you do day by day over time can change the trajectory of your life. Right, exactly. Because we often think about change as these monumental shifts that we have to make, but change is incremental, you know, and um, and that is really what's going to leave you lead you to, like, the promised land. It's all these small acts. It's not these ginormous acts.
0: That's yeah. an important point to consider because a lot of young people don't look at it that way because it's either all... Or nothing. Right, right. You are so wise, and I'm so happy we got the talk. Thank
2: you. Thanks for so being on Fresh Out of Agua. Thank you for having me. Hug on the air. Yes.
0: We always end <laughs> with a hug on the air.
3: pisar bien por el mundo solo sabe hacer su
0: And we're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard La India with Ese Hombre, which means that man, which is kind of fitting for Ivalice's stories, isn't it? La India, who is otherwise known as Linda Vieira Caballero, she is known as the Puerto Rican Latin freestyle princess of salsa. And Ese Hombre, that man, is from her Dicen Que Soy, They Say it's So album, in 1994. A couple of announcements. Today, the 29th, also marks the beginning of the RFB Teen Squad, where Radio Free Brooklyn has partnered with several Brooklyn high schools in a new after-school program teaching media and broadcasting skills to New York City teenagers. To learn more about this six-week session or to get information about applying to others, just go to radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash Well, kids, that's our show. Once again, you've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are going to close with the last of Ivalice's song picks. It's by the one-hit wonder 80s group Solid. They were a freestyle dance trio, and they had this one big hit called Loving You. It was a 12-inch dance record that came out in 1988. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!
3: Don't. Sh-